Good morning! Today is Sunday, the 9th day of July, 2017. There is nothing wrong with having a dream, but sometimes dreams can become obsessions, and obsessions can lead to unfortunate results. Today is the story of Dr. Gerald Bull, a man who dreamed of getting to space by the means of a super gun on the 130th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. It's so wonderful you've decided to spend your Sunday with me. Got a question. Does it say anything about me that I always seem to spell the word genius wrong? Hmm. Anyway, I was watching the Science Channel show last weekend called Mysteries of the Abandoned, a show in which abandoned buildings or things are explored with a brief history of the place or item. I really enjoy this show. So, they had a segment on about a large gun which is rusting in the deserts of Yuma, Arizona. It was one of the Harp super guns created by Gerald Bull. Gerald Bull has been on my list of stories to tell for a long time. So after watching this, I decided today's the day to tell his story. It's rather a longish story, so I'll keep my intro short. But before we get going, I would tell a quick story about me. This is something I experienced over the 4th of July weekend that I thought I would share. Now, unfortunately, my wife was sick with a cold over the 4th of July weekend. So one morning, for the first time in years, I thought I'd go for a long walk along the Des Plaines River Trail by myself. It's something I hadn't done in years. I took a five-mile walk through the woods, and as I was walking, I noticed an unusual amount of gray-haired, balding, older people, some riding bikes, some walking, who greeted me with a friendly hello. I didn't remember this many greetings in the past. For a while, I was thinking, well, that's nice of them to say hello. But then I started thinking about it, and I thought... Wait a minute. They think I'm one of them. Then I thought of how my hair is continually getting more gray, and I thought, to my horror, I am one of them. Anyway, the weather in Chicagoland is a little warm but awesome. And I've got a cup of coffee and a marvelous tale of obsession to tell. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. 
1962, Gerald Bull would try to turn science fiction into fact. He persuaded the U.S. Army to ship the Navy's biggest cannon to the Caribbean island of Barbados. Army and a Canadian university were funding Bull's bold experiment to launch a satellite into orbit from a cannon. On October 4, 1957, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik 1 into space. Sputnik was the first artificial Earth satellite. On January 31, 1958, the United States launched its own satellite called Explorer 1. Since then, hundreds, if not thousands, of satellites have been sent up into orbit, and all of them have one thing in common, the tremendous cost required to thrust them out of the Earth's atmosphere. See, when you look at a rocket sitting on the launching pad, most of what you see is stage one. That's over two-thirds of the rocket, and almost all of that is fuel, which is used up in the first three minutes of flight. The cost for this first stage, for the fuel alone, is huge. But what if you didn't need a first stage? How much money would you save in sending satellites into orbit? In the early 1960s, there was a man who dreamt of just such a thing. His name was Dr. Gerald Bull, and he planned to use, as strange as it sounds, a huge gun to shoot payloads into space, what he called a super gun. This would not only be economical, but it would also give Canada a space program, something they didn't have in 1961. Up until the end of his life in 1990, the quest to build the supergun would become an obsession for Gerald Bull. He would do anything to get it built, and in the end, it would cost him his life. As fantastic as the supergun sounds, it wasn't a new idea. Just as modern rocketry began with the Germans and their V-2 rocket of World War I, the supergun began as a terrifying German weapon as well. In 1918, during World War I, the Germans developed what is known as the Paris gun, in which they used to bomb Paris from 70 miles away. And in World War II, they were working on the V-3. The V-3 cannon was a huge gun that the Nazis planned on using to send huge shells over 100 miles away to bombard London to win the war through terror. When Gerald Bull began his quest to create a huge gun, he researched what the Germans had done and incorporated a lot of their work into his own super guns. Gerald Vincent Bull, known to his friends as Jerry, had had a troubled childhood. He was born on March 9, 1928, in North Bay, Ontario, to a pretty well-off family. His father had been offered the position of King's Counsel in 1928. When the stock market crashed a year later, that all changed. They lost everything and they were forced to move to Toronto so his father could look for work. The following year, his mother died while giving birth to a tenth child, and that led to his dad having a nervous breakdown and then began the heavy drinking. Gerald and his siblings were left in the care of his Aunt Laura, but she died of cancer in 1934. After the bank foreclosed on the family home, his father met and married another woman and sent all the kids to live with relatives. Jerry began staying with his older sister, Bernice. 
He grew up a difficult man, very sensitive and quick to take offense. In a sense, he was an orphan, and that affected his personality a lot, said Charles H. Murphy, a former colleague of Bulls and an aeronautic engineer with the United States Army. He wanted people to like him, and he felt hurt and rejection keenly. Through all his trouble, however, he was able to get through school. At the age of 16, he entered the University of Toronto as an undergraduate. He was high-spirited and stubborn, but at the same time, well-liked by other students and professors. For his postgraduate work, he went to the Institute of Aerodynamics, where he studied engineering and earned a Ph.D. in aerodynamics at the young age of 23, becoming the youngest man in Canada with a Ph.D. It was at the Institute where he began working on wind tunnels, and he was known for always wanting to go bigger and better. Once he worked three straight days without sleep to build a wind tunnel that was able to generate wind speeds of 3,500 miles per hour. He didn't invent technology, really. He just took existing technology and found ways to push it to its limits. Bull wasn't a great student, but he had tremendous drive and energy. Dr. Charles Murphy, a ballistic scientist for the U.S. Army, who Gerald would later work, said... He was a brilliant engineer. He was a doer. He wanted to build things. He wanted to do things other people couldn't do. He wanted to do things people said couldn't be done. In 1953, McLean's magazine dubbed him Canada's own boy rocket scientist. In 1954, Gerald married Naomi Gilbert, known as Mimi, and the two would go on to have seven children. I won't talk too much about their family because, strangely, there is almost nothing written about his personal life. I really wish there was, because most of what I read makes it sound like he was completely consumed by his work, yet I think with a wife and seven kids, there was more to him than that. Anyway, he began working for CARDAY, the Canadian Armament and Research Development Establishment. The group had been in existence since the end of World War II, trying to find out ways to develop rocket systems to shoot down incoming missiles. A lot of this work was done in wind tunnels, but that was very time-consuming and expensive. An alternative idea was to shoot their rockets down the barrels of large guns. Gerald Bull was put on this project. His strength had always been finding clever ways to use existing technology, and he did just that. He quickly showed his genius in learning how to collect data from the firing of these large guns, and it was at this time he began his lifelong obsession with them. In 1961, he moved from Carday to Project HARP, the High Altitude Research Program in Montreal. At this time, both the United States and the USSR were really beginning the space race, but their rockets were very expensive and prone to failure. Project HARP, with Bull leading the way, was to find cheaper ways to launch things like satellites into space. The idea was to use large guns and to basically shoot capsules out of the Earth's atmosphere. The project was co-financed by the Canadian Department of Defense, who thought this might be a beginning to a space program, and the United States Department of Defense, who were interested to see if this idea could reduce the cost of exploring space and, as well, how this work might be used for the U.S. military. 
Gerald Bull with Dr. Charles Murphy worked on research to see what the peak altitudes of various guns could shoot to. And after years of tests and research, one of the first great guns was built on the island of Barbados. It was a 16-inch cannon with a 60-foot-long barrel. While Dr. Bull always stressed the peaceful applications of his work, the presence of the United States Army at the test worried many people. Bull knew to keep his funding, he would have to play both sides of the issue. So it was on a clear day on January 20, 1963, that his first gun was fired. A 694-pound wooden bullet was propelled over 1.8 miles into the air, flying for 58 seconds before landing a half mile offshore. This was just the beginning of test after test, over 2,000 during the years of the program, each one rattling local homes with their deafening sonic boom. Other super guns were built and tested, like in the high water testing range in an area near the Canadian-U.S. border and in the deserts of Yuma, Arizona. It was about this time that Bull became interested in the large guns the Germans created during the First and Second World War, and his designs incorporated many of their innovations. One of the most obvious lessons he learned from the Germans was to think big. You see, the problem with blasting sensitive equipment into space with large guns is the tremendous g-force it takes to power them out of the Earth's atmosphere. In a rocket, you might have 30 or 40 G's, but from a gun, you might have 20,000 G's. It's way too much force for a satellite to survive. The way to solve this problem is to make longer barrels. This gives the payload more time to get up to speed. By doubling the length of the barrel, you could cut its acceleration by half. A longer gun also needs less propellant to achieve the same speed. Bull began working on larger and larger guns to make his dream of shooting payloads into space a reality. On November 18, 1966, the Harp Supergun in Arizona fired a 400-pound Marklet II projectile. It traveled at 7,000 feet per second and made it 111 miles into the air, up into space, and it's a record that still stands today. His son Philip, who's a heart surgeon in Vienna, later said he thought HARP would be a big advancement for Canada in aeronautical engineering. They were already putting small probes into space. It was the drive of his life to be working on that project. He was alone. It was his project. It came from his brains and it was functioning. It worked. The problem with the whole project was that if you can create a gun to shoot into space... The same gun could be used to fire projectiles at another country. To keep his funding, Dr. Bull began working more closely with the United States military, much of which is still secret today. Concerns over this and the disagreement of the United States' involvement in the Vietnam War caused the Canadian government to withdraw their funding. And then in 1967, the United States pulled out its funding deciding to go with missiles rather than guns. Some say that it may be that Dr. Bull had made too many enemies along the way, for Gerald Bull was a very direct and arrogant man who often said what was on his mind, often offending other people. He was known to call bureaucrats morons and the lowest forms of people on earth. But Bull was determined to continue his work on a super gun, 
he purchased an 8,000-acre site in Quebec and started the Space Research Corporation. To continue his research in long-range guns, he needed money, so he began to commercialize his technology. Basically, to raise capital, he became an arms dealer. There were a lot of countries in the world that could use his genius, but not for his huge guns, but more conventional ones. He offered a deal to third world countries to update and improve their existing weapons. He also invented a new gun, the GC-45, a 155mm howitzer. This piece of artillery was very accurate with almost double the range over current guns of the same size. His work was so valuable that in 1973, the United States made him a U.S. citizen. His real trouble began when he developed and began manufacturing a revolutionary new artillery shell with the idea that they would be sold to the United States. Apparently, he thought they had a deal, but then, for one reason or another, they didn't buy it. He was now in deep financial trouble and needed to find a purchaser. Now, this is one of those areas that have a lot of ins and outs. A lot of people were involved, and it could be debated, I suppose, very easily. But to put it simply, the story goes like this. The South African government was in need of bull shells, but at the time, the United Nations had a mandatory arms embargo prohibiting the export of arms to South Africa. Now, allegedly, the sale of his shells were encouraged by the CIA because the United States was secretly supporting South Africa in its war with the Marxists in Angola. The story goes that it was actually the CIA that put South Africa in touch with the Space Research Corporation through an arms dealer who, believe it or not, was named Jack Frost. Later, when Dr. Bull and members of the South African government met without Jack Frost, Frost worried that he was being cut out of the deal and reported the deal to the United States Office of Munitions. Yet even with that, Bull seemed to be getting all the help he needed from the U.S. government, getting approval for shipping the weapons to South Africa in record time, days instead of months. He ended up shipping $30 million worth of shells to South Africa. The problem was, along with shipping the shells, he was also shipping them the technology to make their own weapons. Soon he was being investigated by at least four countries including the United States Customs Service. Even the press was starting to ask questions. And at the time, his business was in deep financial trouble, getting close to bankruptcy. For Bull, this was a very odd situation, being under criminal investigation by one branch of the U.S. government, while at the same time seemingly getting help from another branch. The United States Customs Service planned to indict 15 people, but after a secret meeting between Bull and his partner Roger Gregory, only those two were charged. It would seem that certain members of the government did not want the story to be told in court. Bull pleaded guilty thinking he had a deal that would only result in a fine, but he was furious when, in 1980, he received a four-month prison sentence. Bull all along thought he had done nothing wrong and for the rest of his life never got over what he thought was an injustice by the legal system. 
He felt both Canada and the United States had stabbed him in the back, and he vowed never to set foot in North America again. In a TV interview, he said, I feel more than betrayed. I feel that all the memories and all the traditions and everything the country stood for have been betrayed. They think they degraded me, but they haven't. They think they've broken my spirit, but they haven't. What I did, what I built, to see it cheapened, to see people trying to degrade me as a common criminal, for what? His son Michael later said, There was definitely a major injustice done to my father. He was convinced of that, and that's also my conviction. They used him as a scapegoat for political purposes. There was nothing illegal in what my father did. After a quick vacation, he looked for other countries to sell his brains to. Yet after all that had happened to him, he had not forgotten his dreams of a supergun. His friends said that when he went out drinking, his large gun was all he talked about, and the more whiskey he drank, the farther he claimed his gun could fire. He had been working for years on plans for an extraordinary gun, one which had a 32-inch diameter barrel that could blast a 1,200-pound payload 600 miles, and he said he could build it for under $10 million. He took it to the U.S. to try to get funding, but they rejected his proposal. He moved to Brussels where he continued his company. He was not a mad scientist, totally unaware of his environment, his son Michael Bull later said. He was a party-loving guy. He went out to dinner a lot and enjoyed a good conversation. Brussels was the center of arms dealing, and it was the perfect time to be an arms dealer. The war between Iraq and Iran was happening at the time, and Iraq was using a bunch of Bull's howitzer guns during the war and were very impressed, so Saddam Hussein contacted Gerald Bull about making weapons. In 1988, the Iraqi government paid Dr. Bull $25 million for his masterpiece, what he was calling Project Babylon, a colossal space gun. They had one condition that he continued his work on their artillery, so his company began to develop new weapons for the war. Project Babylon would have three guns. The first, Baby Babylon, a small 350mm caliber gun, was to be used for testing, sort of a proof of concept, before two larger guns, which they called Big Babylons, were built. They would be a 1,000mm caliber with Barrels 512 feet long. The scary part of Iraq having these two big guns was that if they pointed one east and they pointed the other one west, Iraq could probably rule the Middle East. Whether this was a plan or if they were only for Gerald Bull's research, no one really knows. But one can see how surrounding countries would be concerned. The guns needed to be built in secret, so to hide what he was doing, he contracted different parts from different factories from all over the world. Companies in eight countries were involved. The powder for the guns were being manufactured in Belgium, with workers paid extra money to keep it secret. When the company was taken over by a company in England, a highly suspicious contract was discovered, and they reported this to the British Ministry of Defense. By 1989, much of the equipment Bull ordered was under suspicion, and the secret of a supergun wasn't much of a secret anymore. This didn't make the Israeli intelligence too happy. 
people began getting death threats. On March 22, 1990, just days after his smaller prototype, Baby Babylon, was tested, the 62-year-old man left his office late in the evening. He drove to his Brussels apartment. He rode the elevator to the sixth floor and walked down the hall to his apartment. As he took out his keys and put them into the door lock, he was approached by somebody or some people. With a silencer, two 7.65-millimeter rounds were put into his neck or head and three more into his back at point-blank range. Gerald Vincent Bull was probably dead before he hit the ground. It was definitely a professional hit, an execution, ordered by people who thought that the knowledge in his head was just too dangerous. The $20,000 that he carried were still with him when the body was found. He was taken back to Montreal, where his funeral was attended by 600 people from all over the world, from all periods of his life. Two weeks after his death, in the obscure English Midlands port of Teesport, British Customs seized eight huge steel tubes, each a meter across. They were for the gun barrels and were labeled petroleum pipes. Who killed Dr. Gerald Bull? Most think it was the Mossad, the Israeli intelligence service. Yet there were many others that would have liked to have seen him dead. No one was ever charged with the murder. On March 22, 1990, in Brussels, a Canadian businessman named Gerald Bull was shot as he approached his apartment. Bull had a few enemies. An expert in ballistics, at the time of his death, his company was doing business with Iraq. Tonight on the Fifth Estate, reporter Lyndon McIntyre reveals evidence that the Israeli Secret Service, the Mossad, killed Bull because he was designing a deadly new weapon for Iraq, a supergun. Here's an excerpt from the program. To conceal his true purpose, Bull subcontracted different sections of the supergun to different factories. The huge tubes that made up the barrel were engineered in England. The trunnions or supports for the barrel were found in Greece. Pipes, pumps and valves, part of the recoil system, were shipped from Germany. 75 tons of steel parts forged in Italy formed parts of the breach. Altogether, firms in eight countries were involved. Iraq's code name for the plot was Project Babylon. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. A lot of today's story was taken from a PBS Frontline show called Gerald Bull's Supergun from 1991. It's about 50 minutes long and available all over YouTube. That wasn't my only source. I had many, but it was my main source, and I always like to point that out before somebody screams, he just copied these guys. Anyway, if you want to see some of the things I was talking about or learn some more information, I would suggest watching it. I'll have a link to it on Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. Or just go to YouTube and put Gerald Bull in. It comes up like eight times. You know, as I wrote today's show, I really wanted to like Dr. Bull. He seemed like a nice guy in the interviews I watched, but I don't know if I can. I mean, selling super guns to Iraq? It's just so wrong. In fact, the whole idea of arms dealers selling warring nations weapons 
makes me feel uncomfortable. I can't even imagine leaders shopping for these items, walking around saying, I'll take that one, I'll take this one, looking for the items that'll kill as many people as possible, as efficiently as possible. Yet I know some countries need weapons for defense, I get that. But do arms dealers have a moral responsibility to pick and choose who they sell guns to? I mean, if a dealer knows a country that he or she is selling their weapons to is going to use them to, in, to invade another land or exterminate a group of people, shouldn't they have the responsibility to say no? <laughs> Maybe I'm just naive. War, what's it good for, right? Anyway, how about the ending credits? The Psycon Patreon page! It could really use your support. Just go over to Psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N. Look for a link at the top of the page and become a subscriber. It'll really help. Every dollar's important. And a sincere thank you to everybody who already supports the show. Speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? In the latest edition of Who's Who, the Doctor Who podcast, Brecky and Petter talk about the 1983 special, The Five Doctors. Do you think they liked it? You can find out by going over to Psycon.fm and listening to the show. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. If you want to complain or just say hi, feel free. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word, and I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Your story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, and believe me, I understand that, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or some stars or something. Those really help the show out. And remember, all the links that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, to my wife of 33 years for being my wife of 33 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much, and of course, a special shout out to everybody who reposts this on Facebook and Twitter. You don't know how much that truly means to me. It's wonderful. Thank you all, and I'll be back in two weeks with another thrilling tale. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Met a girl from Town. Jeff was always hanging around She drank tea, but that was okay she was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff.
coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with